0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah and I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing
1: Ben? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a good couple of days for me. Uh, Today I ran a special D&D event that was a uh, kind of an interesting partnership between a gaming cafe in town that I run D&D games at and some local breweries uh, to do a kind of combination beer tasting Dungeons and Dragons event. And so for that, I wrote a custom adventure that worked the beers into the story. So as people were drinking the beers in the story, they got to try the beers in real life. Uh, It was a big success. Everything went flawlessly. Uh, So hopefully that means we'll get to run more of those in the future. Um, Yeah, it's just been a good couple days.
0: I'm just gonna stop you right there because you are now like completely coming off as way too cool (laughs) and making me look bad in comparison.
1: (laughs) I mean, I mean, you cleaned the bedroom today. That's a huge accomplishment.
0: (laughs) But it's not cool, like D and D brewery tasting event. Oh, we have
1: a new patron. That is correct. Uh, Karsa Torvald is our new patron, so thank you so much for signing up as a patron, Carsa.
0: Thank you, Carsa. I know they signed up right after we launched our 100th uh, piece of Patreon content, which was a special Q&A, kind of talked more about that last week, um, but that's obviously still up for anyone who would yeah, like n- to take a listen. None of our Patreon content goes away. No, it's there for all of time. As long as Patreon exists. So that's patreon.com slash podcast, mm-hmm. if you want to take a look. What are we watching today?
1: Today, Sarah, we are watching Scared to Death from 1947.
0: Is there an exclamation point at the end of that? No. Okay, so I'm just scared to death, I'm not scared to death.
1: Yeah. So Scared to Death is probably best remembered today as the answer to the trivia question, What is Bela Lugosi's only color movie?
0: And now you too, listeners, can answer that question.
1: Yeah, the next time that comes up at Trivia Night at the bar. The film was produced by Golden Gate Productions, uh, an independent production company, which made six films overall, all in 1946, of which Scared to Death was the last.
0: Okay, (laughs) Um, I thought we were in 1947, though.
1: We are. Uh, the film was made in 46, though. Okay. The distributor of the film was Screen Guild Productions, which was founded by Robert L. Lippert in 1945 and would actually change its name to Lippert Pictures in 1948. Robert Lippert got his start working in a movie theater as a teenager He rose up to become the manager of that theater.
0: Started at the bottom, now we on top.
1: Yeah, by 1942, he owned a chain of theaters in California. His theaters ran older movies on a loop 24 hours a day for 25 cents admission, and they were very popular with shift workers as well as servicemen on leave.
0: Makes sense.
1: Lippert was dissatisfied with the rental fees charged by major studios for their pictures, and decided to start producing his own movies to cut out the middleman.
0: <laughs> a true entrepreneur.
1: <laughs> Some notable films to come from Screen Guild slash Lippert Pictures include The Burning Cross, a anti-KKK film from 1947, I Shot Jesse James, directed by Sam Fuller from 1949, Rocket Ship XM... Uh, The cheap, like, Transmorphers film to Destination Moon in 1950. (laughs) Lost Continent, a sort of Lost World takeoff in 1951. And Superman and the Mole Men, the very first Superman feature film in 1951.
0: Okay. So some hits, some misses. Well, those
1: are all the hits. Um, Oh, no! (laughs) But, see, Lippert's M.O. was to cast former big names who had been cut from their contracts as the majors were decreasing their output in the post-war years. Mm. Uh, So he would get stars such as Veronica Lake, George Raft, Tom Neal, Robert Lowry, and Richard Arlen, uh, all for cheaps. Uh, He shot movies for $100,000 and shot them in a week. So he's putting out a lot of product. Um, Most of them, as you could probably guess, being Westerns.
0: Yes, that is the relatively cheap genre.
1: Yeah, if you're in California, absolutely. Directing the film is Christy Caban, a 58-year-old veteran filmmaker who got his start directing movies in 1912 and directed 166 films in all, retiring in 1948 and passing away only two years later.
0: I mean, after you crank out all of that stuff, it has to take a toll on your health.
1: You may have just heard me say that uh, he retired in 1948. Thus, Scared to Death was his fifth-to-last film.
0: Fifth-to-last. Jeez Louise, bud.
1: We have seen some of his work before. He directed The Mummy's Hand in 1940, which is the, the first one with Karis where they go to Egypt on the expedition. So the film was shot in color to give it a little extra box office draw, which was another tactic of Lippert's to have some kind of little gimmicky thing. But it was not shot in expensive Technicolor, no, instead it was shot in Cinecolor, uh, which is called Natural Color in the credits, which is hilarious because it's nothing of the sort. What is it? So, CineColor was really attractive as a cheaper option to Technicolor, not only because the process was cheaper, but because it required far less light than Technicolor did. Sure. So you didn't have to rent all these extra lights and make sure your set was lit in exactly the right way and so on. Um, it is a two-strip color system with only red and blue. Um, okay,
0: we've seen um, T Strip Technicolor with red and green yeah. in the past. That worked really well for Dr. X.
1: So, in Cinecolor, what you are able to get is really good reds, oranges, blues, browns, and flesh tones. Uh, what it doesn't do well is greens and purples, which come out very muted. Uh, it was originally used to shoot short films and cartoons. But beginning in 1945, it started to see use by the Poverty Row Studios in order to give their product, you know, a little touch of glamour. Uh, it was primarily used in westerns where the system's limitations were less apparent because green and purple don't show up a lot in westerns. Yeah, and, but
0: a lot of brown does. Yeah,
1: browns and blues and flesh tones. Cool.
0: Perfect.
1: So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this stars Bella Lugosi. And he is 62 years old at this point. The last time we saw him was in The Body Snatcher.
0: Mm.
1: And since then, he has appeared in two films. Oh, no. One was a comedy from RKO called Zombies on Broadway, <laughs> um, which was a spoof of I Walked with a Zombie, featuring Legosi as a mad scientist making the zombies on the island of St. Sebastian, and several of the zombie actors from... I Walked With a Zombie reprised their roles as zombies in that film, and that came out in 1945. He also appeared as the butler of the villain in the 1946 RKO comedy Genius at Work. This would be the only film that Lugosi would make in 1947, and it would be his second-last film of the decade.
0: Well, it's nice that he has a starring role Mm -hmm. here rather than just playing, like, the butler.
1: His next film would see him finally reprise Dracula at Universal in 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Uh, Then he would make two more comedies in 1952, so a four-year gap there. Uh, Those comedies were Old Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, with Lugosi as the vampire, Mm -hmm. and Bela Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla.
0: Oh my god. God.
1: And those were his last two films before beginning the period of his collaboration with Ed Wood, which is the next time we'll see
0: him. Okay. When in this time frame is he going to rehab?
1: After he starts working with Ed Wood. Okay. Uh, in fact, Lugosi's health had declined immensely by 1947 as he switched from morphine to the synthetic opioid methadone in an unsuccessful attempt to wean him off his addiction. Uh, He just ended up addicted to methadone on top of the morphine. Yeah. Starring alongside Lugosi is our boy George Zuko.
0: Oh, cool. Okay.
1: He is 60 years old here. The role played by Zuko was originally intended for Lionel Atwill. But...
0: But he's passed away.
1: Yes. In fact, Atwell passed away from pneumonia while filming a serial for Universal in April of 1946, which was the month Scared to Death was shot. Okay. Now, this will be the final time we see George Zuko on the show. He would appear in 19 more films before retiring in 1951 due to illness, and he would pass away at an assisted living facility in 1960 at the age of 74.
0: That's, that's a fairly good age when mm. you've been working this hard this late into your life.
1: Yeah, for sure. Also starring is 51-year-old former Olympic wrestler Nat Pendleton, who we last saw in Mad Doctor of Market Street in 1932. Also featured in the lead female role is 36-year-old actress Molly Lamont, who we last saw as the mother and wife in Devil Bat's Daughter. Roland Varno who's 39, Uh, he played the romantic lead of Return of the Vampire back in 1943, and appears here as the husband of Lamont's character. Finally, we have Angelo Rosito returning as Legosi's sidekick, having appeared with Legosi in 1942's Corpse Vanishes, Uh, but of course we know him best from Freaks. Yeah. The film's production was announced in March of 1946 under the title Accent on Horror, It was shot in April of that year for $135,000. After shooting, it was retitled Scared to Death, a much better title. And then it was held back for release until February 1st, 1947.
0: Do you know why? Not really.
1: um, Other than, like, I I can't really guess at what the reason would have been. uh, You know, unless it was something as simple as, you know, we've sold this many packages you know out and we have to wait till next year to sell this one because no one wants to buy another film from us this year or something like that granted he owned the theaters too so i don't know now in what is a i'm sure complete shock to both you and our audience this film is in the public domain really you can find it on our youtube playlist though it is also available on amazon prime dark matter and flix fling and on dvd from a variety of cheap bargain bin companies
0: Huh. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, experience Bela Lugosi's only color film, uh, head to our YouTube playlist, which you can find on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Scared to Death, from 1947, directed by Christy Caban. See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Wow. Uh, so, uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we, we just finished watching Scared to Death from 1947, uh, directed by Christy Caban, and I don't know where to start with this one.
0: It is bunkers. Yeah. And I don't think that the person writing it knew where they were going as they wrote each sentence in the screenplay. Yeah.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just very stream of consciousness. Yeah. It plays like a first draft, like where you would go back then and like clean things up and like make sure that your like setups were resolved and your red herrings like made sense and like all your extra clues were resolved and like make sure that the characters are all like you know, smoothed out and everything. Like, I can understand if you were just writing a script the way, like, Jack Kirby draws a comic book page. Like, you're just starting at the beginning and just going until it's over. I can get that you'd, like, kind of end up with this, but then the next natural stage would be to go back and do a second draft.
0: This is a great movie to show to someone to prove that... An editor is a writer's best friend.
1: I was gonna say that writing movies is harder than you think it is but because too. you're like always gonna meet that guy at the bar who's like, "Oh man, yeah, like if I could just write a movie, like I got a great idea. Yeah. So let's try to get through a plot summary. Um,
0: I, I have a pretty good one, I think. actually. Okay. I've uh, pulled apart the mix of spaghetti noodles and lined them up into nice slightly curvy noodles.
1: Okay. I mean, to be fair, if you wanted to only say the things that happen in this movie that are ultimately relevant to the plot, you could probably do it in four sentences. Uh, But that wouldn't give you, like, an accurate picture for the listeners at home of, like, what the fuck this movie is like.
0: Before I go into the plot summary, I will just give a a little plug here that this movie is better experienced Mm. than told about. Fair. What an experience. Yeah, there isn't
1: really a good way to, like, make you feel the way we feel right now, Creatures of the Night. Like, it's... (laughs) Listen, it's free. It's on YouTube. There's a link. We told you about it. Like, watch this one. Uh, Just don't... Have
0: a bottle, bottle of whiskey with you.
1: Yeah, don't get it twisted. Like, this isn't, um... Good? No, and the, it's not even, like, so bad it's good. It would be a trial to get through if it wasn't for the fact that it's so bad and it's so crazy that you just sort of keep watching in, like, stunned awe. Like, the yeah. only reasonable, sane reaction to this movie is, what the fuck was that?
0: Yes. Okay, so it's a bit of a an old Dark House thing, mm-hmm. so I'm just going to briefly lay out our cast of characters. Right. So we have Dr. Joseph Van E., Mm -hmm. who is Zuko, his son, Ward, and daughter-in-law, Laura, also known as Lorette Laval. Professor Leonide is Lugosi, and his dwarf that comes with him, Inigo, who is played by Rosito. We have the maid, (laughs) Lilybeth, security man, Bill. A reporter named Terry and his girlfriend-slash-fiancée, Jane. Because it changes depending on...
1: The scene. The scene. Mm Mm-hmm. She she might be a casual, like, once-in-a-while fling kind of girl, where it's like, every once in a while I ring you up for a booty call. Or she might be his fiancée. Yeah. Hard to say.
0: Yeah. So it opens with Laura dead on an autopsy table. And we zoom in on her face as the chief medical examiner is pondering aloud, I wonder how she died yeah,
1: there's before no... he does
0: the autopsy.
1: Right. I mean, there's no marks on her of any kind.
0: Yeah. And as we zoom in on her, uh, we get to see a flashback to how she died.
1: It's literally the corpse's flashback, too. She narrates the movie, and the flashbacks have, like, 100% like stereotypical, like, the screen kind of melts and there's like a Theremin? Yeah.
0: Lots of theremin in this
1: movie. Yeah.
0: So Laura has an intense fear of blindfolds and masks and is under mental strain as a result. Her husband, Ward, and father-in-law, Dr. Van E, have her institutionalized at Dr. Van E's private hospital, which is also in his home. Complicating matters is she won't give Ward a divorce. They are in a loveless marriage. um, And she thinks that this, quote unquote, mental strain is a ruse put on by her husband and his father uh, to make her go crazy to get out of this marriage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you would think that that's true, because in the scenes where they're with her, it really does seem like they're gaslighting her really hard. But then, like, there'll be a scene with the two of them by themselves, with her out of the room, and they're like, Yeah, what's the deal with her? She's, like, crazy, huh? Like, what's going on?
0: Professor Leonide uh, arrives. Um, This is an old friend and possibly cousin of Dr. Van E. Through backstory that we get through the whole movie... He is a magician and Mm -hmm. hypnotist. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, he was performing on stage alongside Dr. Van E. Stole the ticket money and left the doctor holding the bag. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's implied that the doc uh, served time as a result, so they have a rift. But there's also some backstory that Leonide was a patient at the doctor's institution here. And helped install secret passages in the house. So that the guards
1: could spy on the patients.
0: Yes. Anyway, he's been in Europe. We're currently in America, by the way. And uh, Professor Leonide is here now because... The plot vote him into the he's just here to visit like yeah he's it's... just he's like, yeah, I'm just here he's black <laughs> the, doc, the doc is like you're here to blackmail me, and the professor's like, actually, I'm just here for a couple days. do you mind if I stay in your extra room yeah,
1: he's blackmailing him for like a place to stay.
0: Ward approaches the professor with a photo of Laura as Lorette alongside someone named Renee, and this photo is like a publicity photo of their performance act as the Green Mask Hypnotism Act. And Ward asks the professor, if you know this guy or of this act, because you've been in Europe, this this publicity photo's from France, do you know anything about this? And the professor doesn't. Yeah. Lugosi does ponder aloud, but who would know who is behind that green mask? Yeah, I mean... Could it be I? (laughs) No.
1: Everybody in this movie constantly talks like what they're saying has a secret double meaning. And it doesn't. And also everything they say is sort of intoned like it's a threat. Like if I were to ask Sarah how she's doing today and would she like a glass of water in this movie, it would be, Sarah, how are you doing today? Would you like a glass of
0: water? Like, (laughs) that's how everyone talks constantly. It's so strange. Meanwhile, Laura receives a package, and in it is a mannequin mask of her. She thinks that the doctor and Ward are again trying to scare her. When Ward and the doctor see it, they say that it came from an anatomy closet In the cellar, where there's a lost key. And they haven't been in that anatomy area for years. Right. (laughs) This does not come up again. For unknown reasons, Dr. Vanee makes a call to the police and is struck on the head. The unknown assailant pulls the phone wire out of the wall. Now, this doesn't summon the police. Instead... Reporter Terry and his operator girlfriend slash fiance Jane show up to get a story. Laura approaches Terry when he appears Um, about, you know, I'm being kept here against my will. Can you help me,
1: please? Terry's explanation for, like, why he's here is the, like, craziest thing. It's literally like he hangs around police headquarters all the time. The phone rang. It was dead on the other side. His girlfriend's a telephone operator and tipped him off. They're here now because of that. Which should mean the police are, like, on their way behind them. And they are not. They never show up, no.
0: This is when Lilybeth comes in, and she tries to put a green blindfold on Laura, and dies afterwards. Turns out she's just hypnotized, and was receiving telepathic instructions transmitted to her by some unknown person. There's some old Dark House shenanigans with red herrings, uh... Is it Professor Leonide doing weird shit? Is it his dwarf, Inigo? Is it doctor Zanny and Ward actually trying to scare Laura out of the marriage?
1: The movie goes to great lengths to make pretty much everyone but, like, Terry and Jane into possible suspects. Yeah. Uh, right down to, like, you know, the fact that Professor Leonide is walking around in a dark, like, a black fedora and Bella Lugosi's own Dracula cape... Underlit and talking like crazy all the time for no reason.
0: <laughs> the climax of the film comes with Laura, uh, who had been sort of kidnapped, no one knew where she was, and she appears hypnotized with a mysterious voice coming off screen explaining their past. Um. <laughs> Right? (laughs) Go on. (laughs) So, Laura was previously married to her partner in that green mask routine, Renee. Now, it was a hypnotism routine. He would hypnotize her. She would do whatever. And she uh, confesses under hypnotism here that she hated him. He was gentle and kind, But I hated him because of his hypnotism. So when the authorities in Nazi-occupied France came to Laura and were like, we think your husband's a spy. Get us the evidence. She totally did.
1: For half a million francs.
0: And so she was like, cool, my husband's going to be put up against a wall. I won't have to worry about this. To rub it in, I'm going to send him a green sash of mine so that he'll know that I was the one who sold him out. Um, but Renee didn't get shot, he escaped before that happened and has come to America to take his revenge. Laura is confessing, and we have this mysterious voice off screen. Um, the, uh, what I think is supposed to be like a death mask of Renee. Is which has been, like, hovering around <laughs> windows throughout the movie, uh, um, floats in towards Laura, and she screams and dies of fright. Reporter Terry and security Bill go out, and they catch Renee, who is um, dressed as a woman we saw earlier in the movie who was trying to blackmail Dr. Van E. Mm-hmm. Um, but that part's not important we we get some further explanation that before any of this like including the black, the the backstory of the green mask performance Renee and Lugosi's character Professor Leonide met in a concentration camp um,
1: we learned that Renee was Leonide's apprentice his illusionist apprentice, and Leonide taught him everything he knew, and that sometime later, when they were both in a concentration camp, presumably this would be after Rene was arrested, but before he escaped his execution, presumably he must have told Leonide about, like, I'm going to get back at my wife who did this to me, because what he promised Leonide was that he wouldn't lay a hand on her.
0: Yes, which that's is, it.
1: Which is why he goes to all these great lengths to basically send her all these things, and turns out he was the one trying to get her, like, crazy out of her mind the whole time so that he could get her to such a height of fright that, like, he could basically go, boo, and she would fall over dead.
0: Yeah, and he he also wanted her to to confess to her crimes of selling out him to the Nazis. The end.
1: Well... You would be remiss not to mention that we do go back to the morgue from the start so that Terry can ask the chief medical examiner what the cause of death was.
0: He says she literally was scared to death.
1: That's the name of the movie.
0: Yeah. So I I tried to make it as clear as possible, but clearly during the climax things got very, very jumbled. But that's the movie, like I said before, it's something that would be better experienced than hearing about. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, in order to give, like, you did a very good job just now giving a coherent oh, plot summary.
0: Thanks, yeah. Because,
1: like, you know, there's so much crap going on in this movie. And I think, like, as you watch it, like, there's no way, like, absolutely 100% this was being written, like, a page at a time, right? And character motivations are all over the place.
0: In a single scene.
1: Tone fluctuates wildly. Yeah. Also in a single scene. Uh, The script, I think, really wants to seem clever and funny, but it just comes off as, like, bizarre and illogical. Mm -hmm. Nothing makes sense. Every character's, like, actions and dialogue makes them either seem to be insane or they're like a base stereotype. Like, Terry Lee is the most 1940s reporter that you can have. Like, he talks like this, see? Give me some answers.
0: Like, really. Like, I had such a hard time not just laughing through the movie because if someone speaks in that voice, I just find it hilarious. Yeah, um, yeah speaking of the comedic belief, like, Bill is one note. He's dumb. That's the gag. Lilybeth is tiresome because she will go from being, like, like, a shrieky kind of chick to being like, stop looking at me, Bill, or whatever.
1: Yeah, they, they the script doesn't know if she's meant to be feisty or if she's meant to be, like, a scream and faint kind of character.
0: Or, like, a shrew. Right. And Jane and Terry are fucking offensive.
1: Well, so Jane is, like, you know, coming back to the idea of stereotypes, like, she is, like, the dumb blonde. Like, to an immense degree. She's every like, bad stereotype about, like, airheaded, ditzy women that you've ever heard, right? Like, she talks in a really high-pitched, squeaky kind of voice. She can't keep her mind on something for more than a second. Um, She talks in circles. If you try to get her to tell a story, she'll just ramble on about nothing. Because of this, Terry's treatment of her is basically to pretty much outright say throughout the movie, like, what Sean Connery says in, like, Goldfinger about, like... You know, like, man talk, and then, like, you know, go away. Like, he tells her to basically shut up and listen all the time and just don't talk. Um, So he's super cruel to her, and the movie kind of justifies that by making her super fucking stupid. So, like, the movie just has this virulent, misogynist, and, like, mean-spiritedness in a way that... Quite frankly, I found shocking even for 1947.
0: Yeah, and it's not just because that mean-spiritedness is towards Jane. Like, Terry is that way with Bill. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like characters are like that with Lilybeth. Everyone is just very mean-spirited in a way that doesn't feel motivated. I think, like, judging
1: by the way it's written, I feel like the writer is treating, like, Terry as his mouthpiece. Like, like, Terry's sort of the closest thing there is to, like, a protagonist, even though he comes in halfway through the movie. Um, so I think he's supposed to be the one we're meant to identify with, and his attitude towards everyone in the house is, like, you're either a criminal, or you're hiding something, or you're a Nazi, or you're an idiot, and, like, that's kind of it. The thing about all this attempted comic relief, which, like, As I said earlier, like, the tone fluctuates wildly. Like, you'll have a scene where they're talking about, like, murder and death and concentration camps and hypnotizing people and scaring people and creepy old backstories. But then there'll be, like, jokes, like, one line at a time throughout that kind of scene. And the thing about the jokes is all of them, all of the humor in this movie is entirely punching down humor. Uh, So, like, Bill is stupid. Women are stupid ha, 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 that guy's small, right? Like, that's... Yeah. That's it. Like, my jaw was on the floor through most of this
0: movie. Yeah, like, and there's even times where I don't think some things were said as, like, oh, this is, here's the joke for this line. Um, there's a moment where Zuko, his character, tells ghosty like, um, like, I'll forgive your for foreign background or something like right. that. Right.
1: And it's like, excuse me, and like, also,
0: aren't you cousins?
1: Yeah, and your name's Van I or Van E. Like, is that just to explain why Legosi has an accent and you don't?
0: Like, yeah. what? I the,
1: yeah. The movie, the movie's like, like kind of like low key racist on top of being high key like misogynist and ableist, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah the the acting is atrocious, Mm. part of that is the, what I can only really describe as schizophrenic writing. Yeah. Just the way that it can't be coherent in a single sentence and will change tone and motive and intent and... Like, even type of comedy, line to line to line. Um, So, so like, how do you act that?
1: Yeah, how do you build a consistent character? Like,
0: I I thought, like, maybe that's what they were trying to do with Laura, because she's supposed to maybe be out of her mind a little bit, but every character is like that.
1: I think the central problem of the script, honestly, is that, you know, there's this mystery around Laura, right? What's her secret background? What's the man in the green mask who's trying to scare her, Mm -hmm. right? And like you said, the the green mask and the also the mask of her that she finds, they're just the faces of, like, mannequins. Painted. Painted, that have been cut <laughs> off. Or, like, I think hers even looks more like, a, like a, a head that you'd, like, put a wig on or something. Yeah. And the green mask, you know, floats around the, the windows looking in. And it's just, like, on a stick, like, floating looking in. But it's supposed to be the dude's, <laughs> like, face, maybe. And... The most important, like, props in this movie are a green mask and a green blindfold. Yes. And CineColor can't do green, guys. Just think this through. Just, like, again, first draft. Like, someone should have gone in and be like, uh, hey, can we just change every reference to green to blue? It makes no difference.
0: Yeah, it's like the writer... Maybe didn't even know that this type of color film couldn't do it.
1: But everyone on set should have. Like, yeah. it takes, like, you don't have to respect writers in Hollywood. It <laughs> takes no effort to fucking cross out green, green and, and write you, blue. Well,
0: they, they didn't have a uh, command F search function sure. to replace them. So.
1: Sure, sure. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm saying is, like, the mystery around Laura does kind of tie up. Like, eventually we do get all of the explanations for her thing. But the script is spending so much time, the rest of the movie, making every character seem suspicious that they're all given so much, like, vague backstory that might mean they're a bad guy and there's all these clues around everybody and none of the red herring clues ever resolve.
0: And the way that the overall story comes together feels cheap Mm. because it's not like Renee was a suspect we would have known about at the beginning.
1: Turns out it was the woman who showed up to blackmail him at the start who was actually a French illusionist spy for the allies in drag. Like,
0: yeah, like, (laughs) and, and when that character comes in in the beginning, it is Played by a woman, clearly. Um, but when Renee comes in, he is in drag. Yeah, the on the birth side, they don't make any kind of like weird gender jokes about sure. it. Sure, <laughs> they... <laughs> <A> one plus. <laughs> You're watching this movie,
1: and it keeps dropping all these vague hints, and like people sort of vaguely implying that they know someone else's dark secrets to each other constantly. 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 That you're just, like, you're waiting for the moment when like everything will click into place and make sense. Like, what is Vanny's and Leonide's secret backstory with each other? Like, what's going on in this house? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that stuff is explained. All the clues that are red herring aren't explained. And in, like, a fair mystery, you would explain that stuff. You'd go, like, okay, here's the killer and why they did it and how they did it. And that's like, well, what about those noises I heard last night? It's like, oh, that was just me, you know, practicing my ping pong or whatever. Like, you'd yeah, explain yeah, yeah. everything. None of that happens.
0: Yeah, I didn't even mention that, like, whenever something mysterious is about to happen, there's a strange perfume that's not brought up at all.
1: No, what the fuck was that? And, like, how did... Yeah, like, no. I'm not even going to get into sense. the detail because it doesn't even matter. But I will say, Inigo's whole character is nothing but a red herring. Yes. He shows up with Legosi at the start. Uh, people make fun of him for being a dwarf. Uh, he gets angry about that. And he's deaf-mute.
0: But he can read lips. Right.
1: So Legosi's character gives him a bunch of instructions. And all we see him do for the rest of the movie is, like hide behind things and spy on people and then kind of like crawl away when he thinks maybe they've noticed him. But that's it. That never goes anywhere and he never does anything.
0: Yeah. Lugosi also explicitly tells people don't be nice to him.
1: Yeah. It offends him if you're polite to him.
0: Yeah. I would understand if if you were being like condescending Mm. in being nice, but this is like common courtesy type of things that he's like, don't, don't bother. Yeah. When I was putting together this plot summary, um, I did find that apparently the story, the script, is based on a one-act play based on a criminal case in Illinois. Uh, okay. Um, so I'll just like mention this as an example of how this script just snowballed into blah because it does it's it, it's nothing. It's like okay. This uh, criminal case is of a Dr. Alice Winecoop in Illinois who killed her daughter-in-law because her son was in an unhappy marriage. And there's a nugget of that in this movie with Ward and Laura being unhappy and Laura refusing to give a divorce. But otherwise, this is not an anecdote that needs to be on the Wikipedia page. Yeah,
1: I actually doubt that this is true. Because, I mean, there's a reason I didn't bring it up Mm -hmm. in the intro. For one thing, I can't find any evidence of that one-act play existing. For another, the murder case that supposedly inspired it is from, like, 1933. And it has, like, a paperback book-sized Wikipedia page. Yeah. Uh, And, like, I read that shit, and I was like, this is nothing... <laughs> the, there's there's nothing here like you might as well say that like
0: Jurassic Park is semi based on um
1: the founding of Disneyland like <laughs> that's about like oh there's a murder involved in both things it's not like like yeah there's the thing about the unhappy marriage but that's not exactly like a unique enough element that i can't believe that like oh that had to have come from this earlier
0: thing i can see it sparking the idea of the red herring of Because, like, in, like, the first scene, Dr. Venise is like, don't worry, son, I'll take care of it. Yeah, and then... It's better if you don't know anything, and then nothing happens. No,
1: they're all fine. Like, I mean, maybe they're not. Like, the movie, listen, (laughs) they're all evil, maybe. It's just that none of them are the particular evil we're dealing with right this moment. Yes. (laughs) Like... Jesus. It's like when
0: you're reading one of those Reddit am i the asshole right. posts where, where it's like everyone's kind of in the wrong here there's one central asshole right? but everyone's kind of in the wrong
1: except here. that the central asshole was an allied spy who got sold to the Nazis by his wife like of oh I mean the central asshole is Laura. Oh okay. Because I was going to say, like, of all these guys, (laughs) he has the most reasonable motivation.
0: Am I the asshole (laughs) if I come back 20 years later to take revenge on my now ex-wife by making her go insane because she did sell me out to the Nazis? It's like, oh, I feel like there's more backstory here.
1: Speaking of people's motivations, so Bill's motivation, his whole deal, (sighs) is that he was a detective in the homicide squad. Uh, But he's an idiot, and I mean that in, like, a he is a cartoon character idiot. Like, there's a running joke that's basically like a a aren't-I-such-a-clever-writer meta-joke where he says whole sentences that do make sense in context and communicates his meaning and then goes, what was that word I just used mean? I don't know what I'm even saying. I'm so fucking dumb. Like, and, you know, and he talks like this, like, it's, it's 100% beat on stereotype. So he was fired from the homicide squad because they went in to catch a murderer and he shot up a dressmaker's mannequin instead of the murderer. And so he was kicked out and now he's working, you know, the private security beat for the dock, And his whole hope is that some kind of murder will happen at this asylum so that he can investigate it and get back on the squad, which is a buck-fucking-wild thing to be going around hoping. But also, he fucking tells it to people multiple times to the same people in every scene he has in the movie. It's every second line he has. Like If it's like, I was just upstairs looking at this thing that happened... Because I wish a murder would happen so that I could get
0: back onto the homicide squad. like. And then when Lilybeth, quote unquote, dies, they think she's dead. He's like, oh, wow, wow, okay. And doesn't, like, go to start investigating
1: no. it? And, yeah, he's more just choked up about it because, like, he has a crush on Lilybeth.
0: Um, uh, so Lilybeth, really? <laughs> what a name. So Was Elizabeth taken?
1: The whole thing, right, like, what? But, like, okay, so this whole thing with him repeating his motivation every single time is 100% part of the fact that this movie is very guilty of the most common Poverty Row movie crime, which is padding for time.
0: Yes, I didn't even mention that. Throughout the film, we return... To seeing Laura dead on the slab, mm-hmm. um, getting one line of um, exposition, like, and then I knew I was doomed. And then we fade back. And the thing is, the thing is that bothers me about this is uh-huh. not just that like, it didn't need to be a flashback to her on the table. Yeah, it you could have just have voiceover narration. Exactly. Um, it's not that the things that she's adding as exposition aren't actually necessary.
1: They aren't, but yep.
0: It's that when the flashbacks begin, it's her supposedly uh her last thought before she died.
1: Right. That's the first thing that we hear in terms of her voiceover.
0: And we have scenes where she is not there. Like there's a like the right. first twenty minutes, she has purposely locked herself in her bedroom so she is not Taking part with anything else of these characters. Right. So why are we flashing back to see Bill be an idiot with Lily back? Yeah,
1: how does she know about any of this? Yes. Like she shouldn't be able to remember 90% of the movie. I would you can't even give this movie credit for getting to the narrated by a dead person shtick three years before Sunset Boulevard, because it does it so poorly yes like okay you start she's on the slab and as i said it has like the melting film and then we're in the past but yeah like like sarah mentioned there's no voiceover and instead as she mentioned you cut back but every time you cut back it does the whole and then one line of dialogue from like not anything more than like if this movie was like a a newspaper comic strip. This would just be like a caption box on the first panel, quickly getting you back up to speed.
0: Like, Meanwhile, at Stately Wayne Manor. Right,
1: it's that sort of thing. And then, after she says that, which again, she's just a dead body on the slab, so you're not looking at anything. Then we do the full doodle, 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 doodle back. So each one of these takes like a full 30 seconds if not a little bit more to like get through even though the only thing you get out of them is like the next thing i knew i was really in trouble right yeah, like <laughs>
0: it's it's so bad
1: it's very clearly padding for time
0: it feels like this script this film took gothic old dark house film noir and horror tropes and put them all in a blender and it spat out this movie, so nothing makes sense. You get random shit. It simultaneously feels old-fashioned, yet trying to capitalize poorly on relatively new trends. Right, in like Hollywood.
1: the gaslighting trend, and yeah, um, the the whole thing with the narration really, to me, sums up the movie because it, that whole thing where we cut back every time, it's both ridiculous in that like we were laughing each time it happened. And tedious, because it's very repetitive. Like, ridiculous and tedious is this movie.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: One thing that I said to Sarah while we were watching it is that, like, it felt like a script being written by, like, someone who grew up watching bad, schlocky horror movies and now thinks they're doing, like, a clever meta parody on them. Which is so bizarre because it's 1947 and deconstructing film genres with clever little wink-wink-nudge-nudge meta-parodies is not a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's something you expect from, like, you know, Wes Craven in the 90s or, like, a Tarantino movie or whatever. And then the other thing is, though, the person writing it also comes across as if, like, the only experience they have in the idea of, like, writing something is watching old movies, so they don't themselves actually understand, like, three-act structure and character arc, they just kind of know that, like, in an old Dark House movie, you have a weird mystery that nobody can guess, you have a million other suspects who are all possible villains, and you just kind of keep going until you've hit a 100 minutes, and then you stop.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's no structure to this movie, so you're just meandering through garbage.
1: Yeah, it's just that the garbage is so wild that it kind of keeps you going. Yeah. Like, it's like you're you're in the landfill and you could just leave. But you keep being like,
0: Well, what's behind this pile of garbage? Right, and
1: you're like, Holy shit. Is this like an old, like, racist Coca-Cola billboard? That's so weird. I'm not going to take this because it's racist, but bizarre. And then and like, also you, garbage. Right, and you like chuck it back <laughs> on the pile and then like, your significant other is like, okay, but really it's time to leave. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Right over here. This is like a knife with some dried blood on it. And your significant <laughs> other is like, put that down. And you're like, right, but why is it here, though? <laughs> <Like> you...
0: <laughs> oh, Do you want to move on to ranking?
1: Yes, please.
0: So where were you looking?
1: So I fully admit that my range might be a little too high. Because, like, this movie's very bad.
0: Yes, it is.
1: On, like, kind of every possible level. Yes. The only thing that I can unanimously say is good about it is, like, Zuko and Lugosi are the only ones giving a good performance. And it's kind of nice to see Lugosi with, like, a slightly bigger role and actually getting some, like dialogue that like lasts more than a couple lines and he seems to really be having fun with it and that's at least enjoyable for me to watch.
0: Can I say yeah his costume mm-hmm. really reminded me of Lon Chaney Sr. in that um, Alonzo the Armless movie.
1: Okay okay yeah I mean he's wearing a black suit with like a Kentucky
0: like, Fried Chicken guy tie a
1: string tie yeah <laughs> and um, <laughs> he he black has fedora, black the fedora black and cape then with
0: like the red satin yeah, inside yeah
1: which is just his Dracula cape that yes. he always wore to every stage performance of Dracula the one that he got buried in later yeah like it's do you think
0: he like just showed up to yes. set with it yeah and I think no one had the courage to tell him yeah
1: I think he showed up and everyone looked at him and they were like yeah yeah great yeah. <laughs> It's a horror movie. He's the... Yeah.
0: Perfect.
1: So, so yeah. Otherwise, it's not a good movie. Bad writing, bad acting, bad, like, attitude, um, bad editing. Bad I didn't even,
0: atmosphere. I,
1: be, I didn't even talk about the fucking bad editing. This editor <sighs> cannot... Like, so when you shoot a movie, you know, you do a take... And then you cut to a different angle. And, you know, so someone, let's say someone's walking across a room, right? You say action. The actor starts walking across. They leave camera. Cut. We go to the next setup for the second shot. And the actor's standing there. And you say action. And then they continue walking. And when you edit that, the way you edit it is you do a match on action. So it just looks like the actor seamlessly walked through the scene. This editor doesn't do that. So people will reach the end of frame and then stop. And then we cut, and they're stopped, and then they resume walking. It's awful. Nothing about this. It's in color, and the color system used is bad. So bad that you can't tell that the green mask is green. Everything about it is bad. But because I had so much fun watching this, I have a lot of affection for it because I had a really good time. So I think that's balanced out to me putting my range too high, but I'll tell you what it is. Okay. So my floor is 115 below Return of the Ape Man and above The Monster Maker. And the reason why is Return of the Ape Man is also a wild, crazy movie, but is slightly better in, like, a script kind of way. The Monster Maker is the one where um, the guy has, like, Acromegaly. acromegaly. And... It's the one where, like, there are scenes where you watch, like, a gorilla climb upstairs and open a door.
0: Oh, and, like, the dog goes and rescues the girl.
1: Right, but you don't actually see any of that on screen. It's just the gorilla walking upstairs for 20 minutes and then the dog following him for 20 minutes. And then we cut to, and then she was rescued. And so, like, the Monster Maker was boring. Scared to death at least never commits the sin of being boring.
0: Tedious. But not not boring.
1: boring. Right. A key distinction. (laughs) It is. So looking up from there, the highest I would put this uh, is at number 101, below the unknown and above the invisible ray. And I, I, that's too high. But that's, that's, it's just what happened, Sarah. It's just what happened.
0: I can understand why you would be looking this high, because the face of Marvel is at 102. Yes, and it's... And that is equally wild. It Mm -hmm. has a vampire ghost dog. Now, my range is lower.
1: Yes. You probably were a reasonable person.
0: As usual in our relationship. (laughs)
1: Oh, ouch.
0: (laughs) So I started by going, this is an old Dark House movie. Right. That does a bad job of explaining what it's about. Right. We also have a very bad old Dark House movie here at number 135, Price of Mystery. Yeah. But they took pains to make sure every single piece of mystery was explained fully.
1: There is like a five minute scene at the end of the movie that's just someone explaining the movie.
0: Yes. That is my floor. Okay. Because that movie is boring and tedious.
1: And it's shot really poorly, I will say that while Scared to Death is not edited well, it does have some moving camera, it does have some interesting angles, it does have some attempts at cool lighting, which all make it better to watch than House of Mystery.
0: Yeah. So looking up above House of Mystery... I kind of came to a stop around 125. Mm-hmm. Um. So the mad ghoul is at 125 currently. That is Zuko making a zombie kind of person, and they are going to different towns. And the two reporters put the two and two together. Yeah,
1: he's he's killing people following his girlfriend's like singing tour, and he's a zombie who kills people or a ghoul because Zuko figured out like Aztec. Poison stuff.
0: Yeah, so that movie is quite a lot of fun. So yep. I would put *Scared to Death* below that, mm-hmm. above *The Spider Woman Strikes Back* at one twenty six.
1: All right. So where, having looked at that, like I'm totally willing to come down here into your range. Okay. Um, but I do think this should go above *The Monster Walks*. Yes. Which is also a bad old dark house movie, but isn't fun it also has a disappointing plot it also has like a meandering story and too many characters it's also like not good but if I if you sat me down and you said Ben you can only watch scared to death or monster walks it's one or the other and then I'll let you go from my torture basement I'm Jigsaw Um, (laughs) the answer would be scared to death like no question
0: this is great Because it now means that we get to discuss Scared to Death alongside The Spider Woman Strikes Back. So I'm going to ask you, Ben. Uh Uh-huh. Which revenge plot is better? (laughs) My family had to sell all of their land in order to fund my own expeditions to strange and fantastical lands. And now that I am back, I'm using plants that I found on those fantastical adventures to... Uh, poison their cow so that they will leave and I can buy back that land. And the okay. b- way that I, I raise these plants is by feeding it blood from my maid. Or my wife sold me out to Nazis, but I've come back to take revenge by scaring her to death.
1: <laughs> Listen. You did phrase the second one in a way that makes it sound slightly less insane than it is. But I will give you, it's the better revenge story. The problem with it as a revenge story is that we only know about it in the last three minutes of the movie from a character who we have not seen for the entire movie and who shows up at the end. And instead we've been trying to piece together a bunch of fucking red herrings that go nowhere. Spider-Woman Strikes Back, at least all of the people involved in the plot are characters throughout the movie, and Gail Sondergaard gets to, like, be, like, a a chew-the-scenery villainess through the whole movie. This is true. Um, now, in Spider-Woman Strikes Back, the movie does end with her entire house getting on fire and exploding for unclear reasons, whereas Scared to Death ends with... (laughs) Basically everyone turning at the camera and going, she was scared to death. Get it? (laughs) Like the title of the movie.
0: Okay, it sounds like you are leaning towards Spider-Woman Strikes Back as being better. I think
1: it's a better movie. Uh, My difficulty is I think if Jigsaw, you know, Ben, you watched Scared to Death in the first Torture Room. But now we're in the second torture room. You (laughs) once again must choose between scared to death or the spider woman strikes back. Which will it be? Well, Jigsaw, listen. I see what you're trying to do here. But it will just be scared to death again. Oh, good, good. Yes, that is my, you have fallen into my plot, yes. Like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I, I do think I would have more fun watching Scared to Death again, but I do agree that the Spider-Woman Strikes Back is a better movie, so I can't decide which should rank higher. Okay. Can you please make the decision?
0: Sure. Um, Scared to Death will go under Spider-Woman Strikes okay. Back because it is cohesively a better movie. Yeah. So And had thought put into it when being written. Entering the list at
1: the new number 127 is Scared to Death, directed by Christy Caban from 1947.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our YouTube playlist so you too can experience Scared to Death, and our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, reach out directly through email at screamscenepodcast@gmail.com, at or talk to us on Twitter at underscore
1: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and now on Spotify. Spotify. So if you are a Spoofy user, you can finally find the show. Spoofy. <laughs> That's a reference to a really old Game Grumps uh, bit from many years ago.
0: Okay, I will take your word for it. Yeah.
1: So, uh, take a listen to the show, share it with your friends, uh, let people know about it. If you do listen to us on a service that lets you give a rating or a review, give us five stars and just like, you know, just a sentence that's like, hey, it's cool and funny and informative. And like, that's all you need to do, and that'll help us out a lot. We really appreciate anyone who takes the time to do that. And if you really would like to support us, if you really enjoy what we're doing here, head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, and you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, If you subscribe at the $5 level, you get access to weekly bonus audio. I have to apologize for those of you subscribed at the $10 level because I have not put up a $10 update in a very long time, and I'm very sorry about that but all patrons of any level get access to our yearly Halloween content and the recent Q&A segment that we did. So if you are interested in any of that, if you'd like to drop us a few bucks, patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. It really means a lot.
0: (sighs) What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Well, Sarah, next week we're in 1948. Okay. Just moving along. Uh, with a film from Eagle Lion Pictures, the successor to PRC, and it is The Amazing Mr. X, starring
0: Turhan Bey. Oh! Yeah, should be fun. Yeah, that's exciting. Cool. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!